When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Man, I, I'm actually really impressed. Those burps came on my, my check came through in super high fidelity. That, that's how you know you're ready to start podcasting. Yeah, because they have they just have so much range, right? From the low to the ultra high. I'm not going to do. I'm re- I could. I'm not going to do it on the show. That would just be rude. Right. We didn't even EQ it. It was just a naturally full onto the politics. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're talking about something that has been on a lot of folks' minds. Where a lot of people are trying to do the thinking for you, that's for sure. It's true. Yeah, it's true. This one has, it's really a little tired today, so if I stumble more than usual, that's why. Tired of the bullcrap that you've been hearing about this topic? That's it, Eric. That is what I'm tired about. (laughs) It's just exhausting. And yet we persist. So today's topic is going to be about the U.S. withdrawal from Syria, particularly northern Syria, where the Kurds and the YPG are. And, you know, there's been a mind boggling amount of news about it. So we will we're going to break it down for you and provide a bit of much needed context so that you can decide for yourself what matters to you and what our foreign policy in Syria should be and other things like that that you'll be voting for in about a year. So, first, some housekeeping. Xander has a big announcement. I do have a big announcement. I no longer work at GPF. I parted ways with Geopolitical Futures earlier this month, and what that means for Reconsider listeners and readers is that you will be getting a lot more geopolitical analysis from me on the Reconsider platform. So if you're a listener and you haven't checked out our written analysis yet, both Eric and I publish on ReconsiderMedia.com. We'll be getting more geopolitics on ReconsiderMedia.com. And in fact, what we're talking about today, the invasion, uh, Turkey's invasion, Syria, and the U.S. withdrawal, I already wrote one piece on this last week, and I will be publishing a couple of other sort of short, just general context, how to understand this invasion sort of pieces. So keep your eye out for that. Yeah, and for those of you who used to love the blog and then asked where did it go, I, I drowned in the tech startup thing. And so I've just not been able to do it. I had to make a call and the podcast won. So you're welcome. But the blog is back. So uh, you can go to the website and just subscribe. And the only mail you get, the only mail you get is from the blog and mail about the podcast. So it's just content. There's just no, there's just the real thing, nothing else. So go do it. And right now it's 
still all free. And maybe at some point we'll figure out how exactly to monetize the platform. But until then, enjoy. Mm -hmm. If you haven't checked us out on Twitter at Reconsider Pod and on Facebook at Reconsider Pod, follow us, tweet at us. We get a lot of um, episode ideas from listeners. And we are in the process of upping our Twitter game. So the Reconsider Pod Twitter will be more active. So come follow us and tweet things at us that you think are important that you, that you want us to focus on. Yeah. So on to the show. All right. All right. Today is October 26th. So we're looking back 17 day already. Wow. Jeez. Okay. 17 days to October 9th. Turkey invades Syria. And holy smokes did... Just everyone lose their minds about it, which, you know, invasions are a big deal. Like, maybe we should always lose our minds about it. But Turkey invaded Syria. And all I'm going to say about this right now is it's uh, far from the first time in the past few years. It's, in fact, the third time. And we'll talk about the other two times. But just immediate gut check, listeners. Did you know that this is literally the third time that Turkey has invaded Syria since 2016? Because if you didn't, well, now you do. And uh, we're... You know, worth asking why Why did the previous two not get the kind of attention that this one got? And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what are the differences and what are the similarities. But yeah, Turkey invaded Syria and Trump announced that the United States would be withdrawing its forces stationed in Syria and essentially letting, you know, letting local forces sort it out. So local forces being, you know, of course, the Kurds, widely called our allies that we have abandoned and, you know, versus Turkey and Turkish-backed Syrian Arab rebels that had been fighting against the Assad regime, right? So uh, actually rebels that... So what's what's really interesting about this is the Turkish invasion was... There's not actually that many Turkish troops. They're mostly supporting Turkish-backed Arab rebels uh, that the United States has for years also been supporting that are fighting the Kurds, who the U.S. has also been supporting. And the Kurds are now backed by Russia and the Assad regime, who are enemies of the United States. Turkey is an ally of the United States, but currently acting against U.S. interests. And that's what's going on right now. Kind of, right? Because, like, Assad and Russia aren't, like, backing the Kur- the Syrian Kurds per se, but they came to an agreement. It's, it's really complicated, and there are a lot of moving parts, and we're going to do our best to walk through this. But, like, if you find yourself at a point where you're going, like, oh, my God, what, like, it's, it's okay. It's a complicated thing. Everyone else feels that way, too, including the intelligence community. <laughs> yeah the truth isn't it so uh, i don't know why this particular invasion has gotten so much more media coverage than the prior ones and i've been trying to figure that out that was the piece that i wrote about on reconsidermedia.com trying to just figure out what it is about the political environment today that led to so much more mass media coverage of this particular invasion but as eric mentioned this is turkey's third invasion in northern syria in three years the first was called Operation Euphrates Shield in August 2016, which came just like two months after a failed coup attempt attempt against President Erdogan. And originally, Turkey wanted to drive much further into northern Syria than they made it, but the U.S. had troops there stationed at the time. Because the U.S. was supporting Syrian Kurdish fighters uh, in their in the fight against ISIS because the U.S. didn't want to deploy U.S. forces on the ground to fight ISIS, so the U.S. backed these Syrian Kurdish forces. And if you'll notice, I'm going to keep saying Syrian Kurdish forces because the quote-unquote Kurds are not a single entity. There are Turkish Kurds and Syrian Kurds and Iraqi Kurds and Iranian Kurds, and they're all different political entities 
They sometimes play nice with each other. They sometimes don't. The Iraqi Kurd, uh, some Iraqi Kurds are actually have close ties with Turkey, even though Turkey is now fighting the Syrian Kurds in Syria. And we'll we'll try to you know piece all that out. But there is no single entity called the Kurds, right? Let's just get that out of the way. Anyways, so Turkey launched this invasion in August 2016, called Operation Euphrates Shield. They carved out sort of a territory that was basically a triangle in northern Syria that separated some of the Syrian Kurdish forces in northwest Syria from Syrian Kurdish forces in northeastern Syria. So the idea was just blocking logistics and communication between the two groups. The second invasion was in January 2018, very euphemistically called Operation Olive Branch. <laughs> Going to offer you an olive branch and of peace you by over the shooting head with you. It. <laughs> Take this yeah, olive exactly. branch, bam! Right, because if you think about it, an olive branch, like they're pretty big. We actually we got to well, we got to hang out with some olive trees when we were in southern Spain together, right? And uh-huh. uh, I actually made the mistake at the time of eating a olive off the branch. Don't ever do that, by the way. It is so terrible, and it linger the taste lingers. But anyway, yeah, 2018 January Operation Olive Branch, uh, in which Turkey beats everyone over the head with one. And they invade Afrin, a province in Syria's northwest that borders Turkey. Yeah. And this third one was called Operation Peace Spring. <laughs> and this reminds this reminds me actually a lot of like Team America World Police or uh, do you know the game Broforce? <laughs> I don't, so but it's I an, want to. It's an over-the-top, like very postmodern platformer in which you are some character out of like ridiculous macho US media or US past media like Ram Bro. Or, um, yeah, and uh, and you run around shooting everyone because everyone is a terrorist, no matter where you go. And at the end, when you finish, the entire area that you were in uh, blows up and catches fire, and it, de- it it declares that you have liberated the area. <laughs> Rambro has liberated. Yeah, exactly. So peace is springing forth in Syria at the barrel of a gun <laughs> right now as we speak. So this operation, I I think, is bigger than than the one in January 2018, Olive Branch. But I, I'm going to qualify why I say I think. So in 2018, that operation was, as Eric mentioned, in Afrin, which is the northwesternmost territory of Syria. And if you don't have a map in front of you, it will help. We'll put some up on reconsidermedia.com. If you haven't checked out liveuamap.com, they have great sort of maps that are updated with social media data on an ongoing basis that are helpful. Clearly, if you're driving, don't look at a map, but it will help. So Afrin is one of the is the northwesternmost province in Syria. And when Turkey invaded in 2016, Afrin was basically cut off from the rest of the Syrian Kurdish forces. And then in January 2018, Turkey invaded that territory and pushed the YPG, which is the Syrian Kurdish militia, out of that territory. And at the time... The U.S. actually basically greenlit the operation. It wasn't covered nearly as much as this invasion was, but I forget which U.S. military official, but it was a senior official. It was like some colonel who managed a lot of the operations in Syria basically made a public announcement to the fact that, you know, we, being the U.S., we don't back the YPG in a friend. We only have affiliation with the YPG in areas east of the Euphrates, which is basically kind of a green light to Turkey to say, hey, go ahead, um, we're not going to stop you this time. So the U.S. has already greenlit one of Turkey's invasions in northwestern Syria within the last year and a half. Yes, and 
the what's the overall reason? You know, why does Turkey keep invading Syria? Well, there's, there's you know, there's a couple reasons going on. Many of you may already know that Turkey has a somewhat substantial Kurdish population in its south near the border with Syria, and that Kurdish population isn't always thrilled. Not all of them are always thrilled about being ruled by Turkey. In particular, um, we could talk actually about the Armenian genocide a bit, but in particular, given the fact that Turkey has, from its very inception of being Turkey, been really into being a unified ethnostate. You know, thus the ethnic cleansing of the Greeks and the genocide of the Armenians and the suppression of the Kurds. There's been a lot of suppression of Kurdish language, Kurdish culture, in an attempt to just Turkify the whole area, much in the same way that China tries to Hananize everything by by doing things such as, you know, rounding up Uyghurs and Tibetans and putting them in concentration camps and possibly actually pulling people's organs out of each other. Like, it's terrible, right? This kind of behavior is despicable. But it means that the Kurdish, the substantial Kurdish population in the South is, is you know, bucking under the yoke of Turkish rule at times and some of them. And there is a Kurdish workers party, which is a, you know, it's a, in, in one way, it's kind of like Sinn Féin. Uh, in another way, it's much like the IRA, right? It is a, it is a, liberation-minded or uh, independence-minded political organization that uses terror tactics against civilians, police, and the military, um, and will kill people in order to try to win its independence. And since 1980, there's been a like low-level insurgency that's killed about 40,000 people in Turkey. 40,000, right? So imagine if there was an insurgency in the United States where 40,000 people died. And how the United States would would or or wherever your home country is, right? Just imagine how your how your nation might be dealing with that. And the PKK is responsible for a large portion of these deaths and is internationally recognized, including by the United States, as a terrorist organization. So just pause for a second here and let's let's try to clarify some of these acronyms. And the next article that I write on this invasion, on this Turkey's invasion in Syria, I'll include like a list of acronyms as like a reference guide. But so Eric just mentioned the PKK. The PKK stands for the Kurdistan's Workers' Party. That is the Turkish Kurdistan group, uh, the Turkish Kurdish group that is internationally recognized as a terrorist organization, the PKK. In Syria, the Syrian Kurdish militia forces are called the YPG, which stand for People's Protection Units. And if you're like, well, YPG doesn't like that acronym. It's in Kurdish. Work. Yeah, exactly. So just, just hang with it. Just, it's just another level of the complexity here, right? And the, so the YPG, Syrian Kurds, U.S. allies. There's another organization in Syria called the Syrian Democratic Forces or the SDF. The, why, the SDF. why do they get an English acronym? I don't know. I don't know either. It's, it's so confusing. <laughs> but the, so the SDF is comprised primarily of the YPG, but like 25% of the SDF is also Arab fighters, Arab Syrian fighters. That So it's not, the SDF is not all Kurds. The YPG is primarily Kurds, and the YPG makes up the biggest force in the SDF in Syria. PKK, Turkey. All right, clear? No? Great. We'll Great. keep going. And yeah. and by the way, just to muddy the waters even more, the, the SDF has, during the height of the Civil War, against Bashar al-Assad's forces, 
was aligned, was allied with the oh god, the Free Syrian Army, of which the Tur- the Turkish backed Arab group that is fighting with Turkey against the Kurds now is a part. Right. So these guys were allies against Bashar al-Assad for like half a decade. So coming back, now that we've gone over this acronym soup, we'll we'll keep going here. Turkey claims that the YPG in Syria is an affiliate of the PKK in Turkey, which is a terrorist group. And the U.S. disagrees, says the YPG is a separate organization. That's why we've supported the YPG in the fight against ISIS. But Turkey basically wants to eliminate the threat that Syrian insurgents could launch an attack in Turkey and then retreat across the border back into Syria and, and like, uh, seek haven there, right? That's, that's, that's essentially the driving impetus between all of Turkey's invasion. Is they want a buffer space along the Syrian-Turkey border uh, in order to control the flow of potential fighters back and forth somehow. And the thing is, this is not a hypothetical threat either, because in the past, Bashar al-Assad has, or and the Assad regime too, his father, has basically provided some degree of safe haven to Kurdish mil- uh, militants who have launched these attacks across the border. And this is one of the several reasons why Assad and Turkey are not friends. They are adversaries. So when the Syrian civil war broke out, the U.S. originally wanted Turkey to do all of the fighting against ISIS in Syria. And Turkey was like, ISIS is busy kicking one of our enemies' asses right now. Like, why are we going to do that? And Turkey kind of can has some of this, like, Sunni... I don't, I don't really even know how to put it, but Turkey let ISIS fighters and other jihadist fighters move across the Turkish-Syrian border in order to join the war in Syria against Bashar al-Assad. So Turkey kind of told the U.S. to go screw itself, which is why the U.S., began siding with the Syrian Kurds to fight ISIS in the first place. And it's worth noting that from Turkey's perspective, what they did in this war was instead of joining the, you know, instead of essentially invading and getting involved, they're part of their story of why they're the good guys. They've taken the vast, vast majority of Syrian refugees and given them, you know, not homes, but like places to sleep and food. And that's sort of been their contribution to you know to to like the humanitarian efforts. So one of the things to think about here is that Turkey has this, you know, insurgency slash terrorist organization within its borders that is able to cross the borders at will and seek safe haven in Syria. Um, and then when it wants to move back into Turkey, conduct an operation and then go back. And Again, think of whatever your home country is and consider how you would want to deal with that. And there's a problem here in part because the United States has indeed become, you know, an ally with the Kurds against ISIS, right? They work together. The U.S. supported the Kurds to go defeat ISIS. But the Kurds, the YPG part of the Syrian Kurds and and the United States together did not conduct internal operations to clean house of the PKK, which, again, the United States considers a terrorist organization. And so Turkey's sitting there basically going, what the heck? You're continuing to let these PKK guys, the Kurdish Workers' Party, um, you continue to let them operate out of this area. 
and you know, why haven't you done anything about it in all this time? We're going to take matters into our own hands. So most recently then, earlier this month, October 9, Turkey invades again further east this time in northern Syria. So you can imagine they've kind of been carving out this area in northwestern Syria, and now they're moving gradually further and further east. And I've been trying to piece out why exactly this invasion has gotten so much more attention. I don't think it's bigger in terms of number of forces involved, but it's hard to tell. I actually just looked it up on Wikipedia. The estimates on Wikipedia were that Olive Branch, the second operation, had about 25,000 of the Turkish-backed Free Syrian Army and 7,000 actual Turkish troops. And this one has about 15,000 of each. So total numbers approximately the same, more Turks in this one. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I was going. I, I was not aware that there were FSA estimates in this operation yet. There weren't a couple of days ago as of when I checked. But over the course of the year, Turkey has amassed somewhere between ten and 30,000 forces um, along the border. And if they're using 15,000, which is actually more than I had heard previously, I had heard 10,000, then it means that a lot more Turkish uh, soldiers themselves are involved in this operation than the prior one, even though the total number of fighters on the Turkish side are not necessarily bigger. So maybe the size is maybe the size of the invasion is a little bit better, may, or bigger. There's maybe there's somewhat more mechanized infantry and mm-hmm. tanks being used in, in in the past, which would make sense because the area being invaded now is very flat, sort of open plain and desert that is you know behooves tank easy tank movement. Nice use of behooves. Yeah, you're you're welcome, especially because. Something, something, tanks, no longer horses, hooves. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I'm not quick enough right now to make it. (laughs) Something about cavalry. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you got it. Thanks for sticking with me. So that's, uh, we don't know really if the scale of this invasion is much bigger. The consequences might be greater because if the U.S. completely withdraws from Syria, then... You know, you could argue that that's kind of another step in the development of the war. But, you know, as it turns out, the U.S. isn't withdrawing from Syria. And even though Trump said, oh, we're just going to leave, whatever, bye, and everyone just kind of took him at his word. At first, there's only about 50 to 100 U.S. forces that were withdrawn from a couple of towns. And now there are reports that the U.S. is actually sending more forces back into Syria, including tanks to defend oil fields in the northeastern part of Syria to prevent those from falling into ISIS's hands. So it still doesn't look like the U.S. is pulling out of Syria, even though Trump, this is the second time President Trump has announced that this is going to happen. Second time, you say? Yes. The first time was last December when Trump said, we're leaving 100%. I have a 100-day uh, timeline, after which point all U.S. forces will be out of Syria. And they didn't all leave. About 1,000 out of the 2,000 total U.S. forces left, but the 1,000 remained there throughout the entire year. And now, it seems like the agreement that, there's actually several agreements and we'll get into it, but that's kind of establishing a new status quo after this quick Turkish push into northern Syria looks kind of like the safe zone agreement that's been on the table being negotiated between the U.S. and Turkey for the last 10 months. And in other ways... Pretty similar to this other agreement, which Turkey had with Syria in 1998, called the Adana Agreement. And the Adana Agreement basically gave Turkey free hand to intervene, I think it was five kilometers, it might have been five miles, but a short amount over the border into Syria in order to be able to protect against the movement of potential Kurdish militant groups. 
So it's interesting to me how, although the, the current agreement looks like the depth into, into Syria by which Turkey's allowed to maintain a presence is going to be deeper, it looks like closer to 20 miles, or maybe it's 20 kilometers, but it's a little deeper than Nadana. Basically, the same sort of agreement is being set up or is coming about that will govern Turkey's role in Syria as existed 20 years ago before the civil war ever got started. Yeah. It's possible that one of the things that, that at least at the perception level makes this different is the fact that, you know, if we think of Euphrates Shield, the United States drew a line and said, we're not actually going to leave Manbij. We need Manbij. And it's worth noting that at the time, ISIS was still operating quite substantially. And so the United States was saying, no, 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 no. We really need this. And during Olive Branch, the U.S. had already left Afrin a long time ago because it was already quite isolated. And so because of Euphrates Shield, Afrin was, or Afrin was quite isolated and there wasn't a whole lot that anyone could do. And Turkey rolled in and, and the Kurds were like, ah, we got to get out of here. And it was, you know, both of these were, of course, ugly, right? War is always ugly. And this time, part of what's different is you said, you know what, we're like, we're just going to boogie because um, the U.S. could have left, could have left even a few troops in these areas. And they would have been what I would call like a blood blockade or a blood roadblock where, you know, if you have a U.S., you know, U.S. soldiers hanging out in Kobani and then a bunch of shells start falling and U.S. soldiers die. That's bad news for whoever, whoever launched those shells. It's bad. It's going to be a bad day. and. That may have been the part that was different, which was that in this case, the U.S. one withdrew quite suddenly, and two, you know, kind of withdrew withdrew forces from an area that it could have kept them there. You know, we've at this point just moved them to a different part of Syria, but could have kept a few of them there as this sort of blood blockade, and it may feel a little bit more like a moral quandary or a, a morally questionable decision. Um, Xander, I don't know if 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 I'm off there on my facts about the difference between this and the last two Turkish operations. I, I think that's right. Certainly in Euphrates Shield in 2016, that was the case. And that was part of the part of the reason why Turkey was not able to advance as far as it wanted to, because the U.S. said, we're not leaving. If you move further, we're going to have a real problem here, buddy. And in in Olive Branch, that wasn't the case because the U.S. basically greenlit Turkey's advance into Afrin. And then Turkey also worked out a deal with Russia at the time to make sure that Turkey could freely use the airspace and bomb whoever they wanted. So maybe this time the fact that the U.S. is saying again, like, it's okay, come on in, that's different. But it's only different from Euphrates Shield and not necessarily Afrin. So... Turkey rolled in, and interestingly, the United States actually immediately levied sanction against, sanctions against Turkey. So actually, unlike a friend, we didn't actually greenlight an operation. We left, the United States left somewhat suddenly, and then Turkey said, all right, we're invading. And it's pretty clear, you know, President Trump, or at least the administration, made it pretty clear that that was not the plan. Like, that was not the United States' understanding of what would happen. And not, you know, and, and there's that like infamous letter uh, that Trump sent to Erdogan. It was like, don't be a tough guy. Don't be a fool. It's pretty public. It's not the best written letter. I mean, I don't know who greenlighted that letter. You know, the United States president made it clear that that the United States was not on. It was actually not on board with this invasion and slapped sanctions on Turkey 
not even going to talk too much about those sanctions because they've been lifted because of these deals that were made with the United States, with Syria, and with Russia. And so the U.S. is still is not going to put troops back into northern Syria here, but uh, is instead moving them to he's move some of them to Iraq, move some back from Iraq to other parts of Syria to hold down the fort on a bunch of oil fields to prevent them from falling into the hands of ISIS. But the ceasefire, but but the United States uh, and then Russia got a ceasefire agreement that was temporary, and it now looks like there is a deal emerging to allow for kind of a corridor of uh, joint patrols between Syrian regime forces, so Bashar al-Assad's forces, with some Russian forces in that strip of northern Syria to remove YPG forces from a safe zone along the Syrian-Turkish border. And this is what Turkey claims it has wanted because the YPG has provided a safe haven to the PKK. And from, I believe, from Turkey's official perspective, uh, which has its own kind of propaganda wrapped up in it, there's really no difference between the two anyway. Right. Yeah. So there are two ceasefire agreements that have occurred in the course of like the last two weeks. The first was between the U.S. and Turkey, and it was supposed to halt the, the offensive there are a lot of reports that it didn't, and I think that was the impetus for the, the additional U.S. sanctions against Turkey, although the U.S. has had tariffs on exports of Turkish steel and aluminum for a while now. So those were incremental because it looked like Turkey wasn't kind of obeying to the, by the, the guidelines of the, of the ceasefire. But then that ceasefire agreement ex- expired anyways last Tuesday. And this new one is between Turkey and Russia. The U.S. is not involved in it, but Mike Pence has come out and said that they be, the U.S. supports the idea of this safe zone that um, Russia and Turkey has proposed. And as, as Eric mentioned, phase one of this new ceasefire with Turkey and Russia involves joint patrols between Syrian regime forces and Russian special, uh, special operation forces. So there will actually be Russians on the ground patrolling clearing these areas of YPG forces in northern Syria. And then I think it's in 10 days after that begins, a, a more narrow strip, same area, but it's somewhat more narrow, will be patrolled by Turkish forces and Russian forces jointly. So that's kind of what it looks like right now. And it, it kind of, as far as I can tell, it seems like everyone's happy. Like even, even a leader of YPG forces came out and thanked President Trump for all the help and said that, like, you know, what was this quote? I have it here from CNN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. General Maslum Abi, Abdi yeah. tweeted the following. I just spoke with President Trump and explained to him the Turkish violations of the truce. That would not have been possible without his great efforts. We thank President Trump for his tireless efforts that stopped the brutal Turkish attack and jihadist groups on our people. Right. And Putin seems to be very happy about the deal hashed out with Turkey and is calling it, you know, using words, making it seem like a bigger deal than it really is, like momentous, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, I guess it's like a tactical, you know, agreement over like a narrow border strip. But sure, it's momentous, whatever. And Erdogan <laughs> seems to... <laughs> It's the biggest thing in the world. We've negotiated over 19 It's kilometers. a huge, beautiful deal to patrol a massive, absolute, you, you wouldn't believe it, you should see it, just incredible piece of real estate. And by the way, I'm the best at real estate. Vladimir, the best. Vladimir Putin. That's a direct quote. Yeah, from exactly. Putin. Yeah. President Putin. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where it stands now. It seems like the YPG is, I mean, not thrilled, but okay with the idea of kind of returning in some way to being closer with Assad and Russia, which I think was basically the plan all along because when the Civil War started, Assad and Syrian Kurdish forces kind of had an agreement where Assad said, you know what, we don't want to fight you. And Syrian Kurdish forces said, we have no beef with you. So Assad basically let the Syrian Kurdish forces just fight ISIS in the north and hold down and maintain their own semi-autonomy while Assad fought other jihadist groups uh, that were rebelling against him. So the the idea, there was always a notion that at some point Assad was going to come back and reincorporate these northern territories where the Kurds were to some degree or another. And it looks like that's kind of happening, although the YPG is having to reposition further away from the Turkish border. Russia seems pretty happy about it because what Russia did not want to happen was Turkey invades and Assad has to respond somehow. And there's actually been a standoff between Assad's forces and Turkish forces and Turkish-backed militia forces in another part of Syria called Idlib, which is also in the northwest, oh, yeah. but just south of Afrin. Again, a map helps. Because if Assad were to attack places where Turkish forces are and kill like you know a Turkish soldier, then all of a sudden Russia might have to like stare down going to war with Turkey, which Russia really doesn't want to do, right? Russia got into this war in order to bomb a bunch of non-state groups with their planes and because they couldn't fight back, but Turkey could fight back. And so Russia seems pretty happy with the deal. Turkey seems to have politically gotten what it wants. Yeah. And this is, this is one of these places where you need to think about, you know, why are people mad versus should they be mad and mad about what? And, you know, so we're still we're still kind of scratching our heads a little bit over why this is such a big deal compared to the previous two invasions. And it, one of the things we need to note that we very much super duper need to keep in mind is that the first and largest and most destructive invasion by Turkey of Syria was in August 2016. Xander, who was president of the United States at the time? And it was just kind of like it's one of those things that this is not a defense of the president. But one of the things I think that we're not good at as a country is separating who's president at the time from what happened, right? So imagine you're a, an Obama supporter and Turkey invades Syria against your wishes and you pull back a bunch of troops. Now you hold the troops, you'd hold the line somewhere, 
but you pull back a bunch of troops and a bunch of people die, right? A bunch of Kurds die. American allies, the Kurds. And you, you are a supporter of President Obama. And your feeling on this is what? Are you outraged that President Obama abandoned our allies? Or do you understand that this is a highly complex, you know, region, like regional, multi-ethnic, multinational struggle where there's a lot going on and it's not the U.S.'s job to play world police all the time? And then in 2019, when Turkey invades Syria and Trump pulls back a bunch of troops um, to a different part of Syria, do you feel like it's a, you know, do you feel like, oh, this is a, you know, complex, in multinational, multi-ethnic conflict where the U.S. shouldn't be the world police? Or do you feel like the United States abandoned its allies and is evil? And, like, there are some differences here, but but, you know, but not huge ones. And for all the ways in which each of these presidents has real criticisms, and I'm not going to comment on the extent to which, like the magnitude of criticisms for each of them, right? Like you've, you've already made up your mind about that and it doesn't help me or this show to say like, who's worse. But as much as there are real criticisms, to what extent are we treating two very similar situations very differently because there are different bodies at the top of the U.S. pyramid. And that's, that's one of the things we need to think about. But there are a few other ways in which, you know, in which, like, we could see why, you know, why we're going to be reacting differently. One of them is how, how it was done, right? Xander, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I, and I think you can make a good argument here that it was haphazardly announced and the pl- the there were no plans to withdraw after the announcement there's a piece by Aaron Stein who is a turkey expert on war on the rocks war on the rocks and we'll include a link to this piece he's he's actually a huge trump critic but this piece is interesting because he says you know look trump has been saying now for well over a year if not since when he came into office that like he plans to withdraw troops from syria and no one in the military or uh, diplomatic establishment really took him seriously. And as a result, no one planned to have some sort of, you know, logistics worked out for when it actually happened. So his contention was, yes, Trump is at fault here because he did it haphazardly, but he's not solely at fault because everyone whose responsibility it was to take orders from the president and plan around him didn't, basically ignored that this was going to happen. And as a result, there are no plans when it was their job to build the plans. So it's a good read. It's thought provoking and it doesn't fit neatly into a narrative. So check out the war on the rocks piece from Aaron Stein there. Yeah. And he postulates to some extent that Trump essentially just finally got frustrated of saying, we need to do this. We need to do this. We need to do this. Everyone said, yeah, yeah, that's nice, Mr. President. And then he's like, all right, well, nobody's listening to me. I'm just going to do it and like force the issue. Now, at the same time, there is, you know, having having caught the DOD and State Department off guard, you know, makes their lives very difficult and makes this much more chaotic than it needs to be. And there's an Atlantic article that we're posting in which um, very like apparently very high ranking officers from the U.S. military and high ranking officials from the intelligence community are interviewed and they express a lot of frustration with how Trump throughout his whole administration has handled foreign policy and military affairs as a whole. Um, and this seems to be no exception that there are some patterns of how he thinks about the military, thinks about, you know, U.S. US foreign policy and thinks about 
you know, his own relationship with his military and intelligence leadership that they find very, very odd and very new and very frustrating. But again, this is not new because last December, President Trump did exactly this. He tweeted that we're going to withdraw all U.S. troops within 100 days. It didn't happen. Right. And people were caught off guard. And what has happened between now and then? It seems like someone should have figured out you know, it should have been someone's job to start saying, okay, well, this might, you know, happen again. We still have a thousand forces there. What happens when he says, screw it, we're doing it again? And he did. And again, U.S. forces have not left Syria entirely. Yeah. They, they've been reduced, but some more mechanized units have been sent back in. We, I don't have a good read on how many of the remaining thousand are still there, but it's not zero. So a lot of similarities to last December. Yeah. And it's a clear sign that there is... Like there is conflict between the president and you know the DOD, right? Or or and and like the, the officials between them because there's these are not well coordinated things where everyone goes like, great, we're on the same page, let's go. And I think that the other reason that the other reason to you know that a lot of people will will be very critical of this is that Russia now has troops on the ground in Syria, and and of course there's this narrative that uh, Trump probably works for Putin. You know, and, and he's just a Manchurian candidate. And Putin probably just asked him for this somehow. Putin was like, oh, yeah, you know, what'd be great is if you could leave Syria and let Turkey invade. And like, that would be wonderful. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. One of them is that, as Xander just discussed, like Putin super duper doesn't want Turkey invading Syria. That's not good for Putin. That does not help Russia in any way. In fact, it's bad for Russia. And Russia having troops on the ground, it's not really clear how that helps either other than in preventing Turkey from invading further, right? Like Russia does want Syria as an ally, does want some stability there. Syria's access to the Mediterranean um, and the ability to keep its air bases there is somewhat important to Russia. And therefore, if it all went to hell, right, that would be bad for Russia because Russia's like, okay, I've lost, I've lost a, you know, a, a important kind of geographical node here in terms of military power projection. But it's not entirely clear to me what, what Russia gets out of having to patrol this like strip of strip of land between Turkey and Syria. And it's also not entirely clear to me what the U S what the U S gets out of. Yeah. What the U S gets out of having a troop presence in Northern Syria in the long term, right? Ultimately, uh, you know, is it, you know, I think, I think one of the things we need to consider as we think about this and Xander, I kind of want to get your read on it. But one of the things I, I don't have a strong answer to, but I, I think are worthwhile questions are what was the U.S. strategy at this point? Like what was OK, we've we've like to a large extent defeated ISIS, right? Certainly destroyed ISIS's ability to create a you know to create a true state and to create these large safe havens for transnationalist jihadist groups. That's not actually originally why we got in Syria. The original reason we got in Syria was like, well, there's an Arab Spring toppling, you know, toppling Bashar al-Assad seems cool or it seems like the right thing to do because he's a he's a war criminal and a bad guy. And we have this great idea, which is totally different from what we did in 2003 in Iraq. Trust me, where what we're going to do is we're going to go in and topple the brutal dictator of a multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian state. And I'm sure it will totally work out fine. Not like Iraq. Not like Iraq at all. Like that Iraq. was the that was the and that was one hundred percent of the plan of why we got to Syria in the first place. Is we'll top of this guy, it'll work out fine. Just like when we toppled a dictator in Libya, it worked out fine. Worked out and great. Yeah. everything was great. Everyone's so happy with us and and nobody died. And 
and then we got into it and we started funding all these, you know, all these anti-Assad groups. And it turned out they're jihadists. Oops. And so now there's, you know, and, and so we, cre- you know, of course, we helped create this anarchic state where, where ISIS showed up. And then we had to stay in Syria to go beat ISIS. Right. And then we largely speaking beat ISIS. So beyond that, like, what is the U.S.'s actual interest in Syria? Um, why, sh- you know, should we, not why, but like, should we have troops in Syria? Should we try to should we have a vested interest in the outcome of who runs Syria? Is there a particular reason we should care? Yeah, I I think just telling the story of how the U.S.'s involvement in Syria has unfolded over the last six years, more than anything, paints a picture of a lack of a strategy. We really, I mean, you you talk about supporting these rebels. I mean, the idea at first was these quote-unquote moderate rebels, right, that turned out to not exist. This one particular program, I forget exactly what it was called, was something like $500 million were were spent to train moderate rebels to Assad, and something like between five and ten soldiers ended up getting trained five and 10 people for $500 million. So there's just been like a lack of forward thinking in the U.S. about what it really wants in Syria. And that's why it's gotten sucked along, dragged along, pulled along by the events more than leading them, really. I don't know if the U.S. has a really strong interest in maintaining troops in Syria forever. I mean, everyone, something, one narrative that I certainly don't get is everyone saying, oh, Putin totally won. You know, he got a victory over the U.S. and he outsmarted him. And I'm kind of sitting here thinking to myself, like, how did the U.S.'s, you know, winning the right to occupy Iraq for a long time work out for it, right? Like, I mean, granted, the Russian deployment in Syria is much less than the U.S.'s deployment in Iraq was, mm-hmm. but the the right to try to maintain order in Syria does not, like... That does not seem like a big victory to me. That seems like the sort of thing that can risk draining Russian resources, kind of like the Afghan war did for Russia in the 80s. So, yeah, I think one of the things, yes, one of the things we need to think about before we decide, like, who won, you know, and what is the strategic implication long term is what are different nations actually getting out of this? It seems it seems in some way like Turkey had an objective to limit the ability of the PKK to operate with impunity across the border in Syria. And that was a strategic objective for Turkey. Is that, is that something that you think is good or bad? You can decide. Russia is now on the ground in northern Syria patrolling. Is that good or bad? You decide. Would it have been better if Turkey had actually invaded all the way and like highly disrupted Bashar al-Assad's regime? And like now there's maybe a kind of pro-Turkish puppet in charge rather than a Russian puppet in charge. Is that better? You decide. Was there any path towards these alleged moderate rebels being in charge and like a happy pro-US democracy running Syria? No. Let's just be let's just be honest. No. And then of course for the Kurds, one of the questions we also need to ask is like in the long term, what was going to happen? All right. So we have this like current fragile status quo. We had this fragile status quo where, like, the Kurds, the YPG controls a substantial, or the SDF as a whole controls a substantial part of Syria. Now, kind of the crappy part to a large extent, uh, north and east of the Euphrates. But, you know, they occupy this, which, okay, so they have that. But long term, what were they going to do? Were they going to become their own country? And, you know, if they tried to declare independence, imagine how Turkey and Iraq would probably react, right? Um, and would the U.S. go to war to try to give the Syrian Kurds true independence? 
right? Even though the, the Kurds worked with the U.S. to defeat ISIS, was, would that happen? Or if they're not going to try to declare independence, you know, what, what is going to be the, the, political, you know, the political resolution for this? And should the U.S. get involved in that political resolution? Maybe. But given a lack of strategy to date so far, um, you know, what was what, you know, is, is there a way that for the Kurds, like there is this world where they can have a peaceful, happy, independent place in northern Syria where they have autonomy and, and freedom and they can speak Turkish or Kurdish and, and all this good stuff in which in which they don't face existential threats or, or they don't face like they don't become a mutual existential threat with Turkey. And so I think like to some extent, as we think about, you know, as, as much as like where I'll have an opinion is like, I do think the, the withdrawal was ham fisted, but in the long game, when the U S is sort of abandoning its allies in, in, you know, Northern, Northern Syria, what was, what was the way in which the U S would ultimately not do so? And I'm not saying there's not an answer. I'm saying, I don't know the answer. And I think if we're going to, if we're going to claim that the U.S. abandoned its allies, there has to be an alternative in which things work out okay. Um, and that has to exist or be plausible. I want to use that as an opportunity to transition to what I, I think is another, I guess, another example of tribal flippage. I really am starting to like that term. Because you asked me in August 2016, who was the president of the U.S., right? Clearly Barack Obama. I think a somewhat more analogous example comes from a little bit further back. And again, the criticism of Trump right now coming primarily from the left is he's abandoning our allies. And it's a legitimate criticism, right? Because it's right. basically what's happening. Right. Um, it's also not the first time that the U.S. has abandoned the Kurds, but that's actually probably a different history and we won't get into it right sure. now. But the, the, the counter argument to that is like, well, what are we going to do? Stay in the Middle East forever? And the left is not very happy with that right now. But do you remember when this president ran in 2008 on leaving Iraq? Yes. And what the argument from the right was at the time about leaving Iraq? We'd be abandoning our allies. Right. And the left just said something along the lines of, well, we just need to get out. It's an unjust war. It's been too long. So whatever. Right. I'm sure it was a little more sophisticated than so whatever. But yes. Yeah. Right. Well, like I said, it's a tired day. But it, it's the arguments for why we should leave Iraq or why, why we should have left Iraq back in the day were very similar to what the people supporting the U.S. leaving Syria are saying today. I mean, it's just almost like a complete left-right flip based on who's making the decision. And again, I think you can, you can make a pretty strong point that we probably shouldn't have left Iraq in 2011 like we did because it contributed to the rise of ISIS. But there was absolutely not enough public support to keep a major uh, peacekeeping force U.S. peacekeeping force in Iraq after 2011. So we pulled out and it went to hell. And now everyone who said back then, uh, we just need to leave, we need to get out, it's been too long, are making the same arguments. So I, I think that's an interesting point to consider when you are you know, pondering this particular issue at home at night with a glass of scotch and wondering what is right. Yeah, and and... I think the thing to look out in particular for are the knee jerk arguments where, um, you know, I just remember there was a, I don't know, I saw some, uh, something on Reddit somewhere at some point where someone said, you know, hey, Trump said all these inspirational things. Aren't they great? And someone else said, yeah. And it's like, oh, they were actually things said by Barack Obama. Gotcha. But and it was a little, you know, it's it's like pretty, pretty lame. But ultimately, it reminds us that 
you know, we have these expectations built in that, like, let's say, again, we're a supporter of President Obama and an opponent of Trump. Probably we have this notion that if oh, Obama is a smart, thoughtful, caring, good person, and so everything he does is smart, thoughtful, caring, and good. And Donald Trump is, you know, he's either like a like a, a Russian puppet, so everything he does uh, helps Russia, or you know, or, or he's he's just like generally dumb and infantile. So everything he does is by definition dumb and infantile. And so we've we've kind of like we've made these decisions ahead of time about how we're going to judge something, no matter what it will be. Right? Someone is going to do so. It's going to be new. It's going to be different. And it will, we already know exactly what adjectives we will apply to the thing, right? To the event, to the policy, to the decision. Because we've already, you know, we, we have, we are so confident in our understanding of someone and that that person is a monolith, that everything they must do, everything that they will do will fit into our like simplified set of like four or five adjectives about that person. That is the that point where we start having these knee jerk reactions that where we where we start to like pervert reality pretty significantly because you can always you know you can tell a story that you know a pull out of Iraq in 2011 was the right thing to do or that it was a, or that it was a terrible thing to do or a cowardly thing to do you could tell a story where look the U S getting out of Syria like you know is is the the right thing to do that the U.S. shouldn't be the world police or that it's a that it's a cowardly thing to do and that we're abandoning our allies. You can always tell all these stories about it. And we got to be we got to make sure that when we're thinking about the story that we're going to tell ourselves, that we give that story an opportunity to emerge in the specific context of each individual decision and policy rather than come with a prepackaged story that we're just going to slap on whatever we see. All right, everyone. So with that ends our summary of this most recent Turkish invasion and a lot of the political narrative surrounding it. It is by no means a straightforward or simple issue. And if there's one thing that we hope you walk away from this episode with is that it's complicated and not easy to understand. And for that reason, we'll probably not fit super easily into these pre-baked narratives that, you know, get 30 seconds of airtime. But Hope you know a little bit more about all the players in Syria right now, why it's complicated, why it matters for the region, and hope you'll tune in next time. With that, dear readers, readers, listeners, it's just one of those days, guys. It's just one of those days. Dear listeners, we'll remind you to not let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And hopefully you don't think we did the thinking for you either, that we're not in support. We're not we're not officially supporting any of these official, you know, any of these particular stories either. You know, we obviously feel how we feel about it. Go decide for yourself how you want to feel about it. This is Eric signing off. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 